The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Ladies and gentlemen, Real Paranormal Activity is proud to present Terry's Mysterious Moments. Welcome to Season 2 of Terry's Mysterious Moments. Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you find something interesting. Or maybe something spooky. Or maybe something just... Mysterious. Good evening, everyone. This is Terry from Texas with another episode of Terry's Mysterious Moments. We've got a lot of information to cover tonight, so let's jump right into the story. The Zodiac Killer, or Zodiac, was a serial killer who operated in Northern California from the late 1960s into the early 70s. The killer's identity remains unknown. Zodiac murdered victims in Benicia, Vallejo, Lake Berryessa, and San Francisco between December 1968 and October 1969. Four men and three women between the ages of 16 and 29 were targeted. The killer originated the name Zodiac in a series of taunting letters sent to the local Bay Area press. These letters included four cryptograms, or ciphers, and of the four cryptograms sent, only one has been definitively solved. Suspects have been named by law enforcement and amateur investigators, but no conclusive evidence ever surfaced. The San Francisco Police Department marked the case inactive in April of 2004, but reopened it at some point prior to March of 2007. The case also remains open in the city of Vallejo, as well as in Napa County and Solano County. 
The California Department of Justice has maintained an open case file on the Zodiac murders since 1969. Although the Zodiac claimed 37 murders in letters to the newspapers, investigators agree on only seven confirmed victims, two of whom survived. They are David Arthur Faraday, 17, and Betty Lou Jensen, 16, shot and killed on December 20, 1968, on Lake Herman Road within the city limits of Benicia. Michael Renault Magot, 19, and Darlene Elizabeth Farron, 22, shot on July 24, 1969, in the parking lot of Blue Rock Springs Park in Vallejo. While Magot survived the attack, Farron was pronounced dead on arrival at Kaiser Foundation Hospital. Brian Calvin Hartnell, 20, and Cecilia Ann Shepard, 22, were stabbed on September 27, 1969, at Lake Berryessa in Napa County. Hartnell survived eight stab wounds to the back, but Shepard died as a result of her injuries on September 29, 1969. Paul Lee Stein, 29, was shot and killed on October 11, 1969, in the Presidio Heights neighborhood in San Francisco. The following murder victims are suspected to be victims of the Zodiac, although none have been confirmed. Robert Domingos, 18, and Linda Edwards, 17, were shot and killed on June 4, 1963, on a beach near Gaviota. Edwards and Domingos were identified as possible Zodiac victims because of specific similarities between their attack and the Zodiac's attack at Lake Berryessa six years later. Sherry Jo Bates, 18, was stabbed to death and nearly decapitated on October 30, 1966, at Riverside City College in Riverside. Bates's possible connection to the Zodiac only appeared four years after her murder when the San Francisco Chronicle reporter Paul Avery, who worked long hours on the Zodiac case, received a tip regarding similarities between the Zodiac killings and the circumstances surrounding Bates' death. Donna Lass, 25, was last seen September 6, 1970 in Stateline, Nevada. A postcard with an advertisement from Forest Pines Condominiums near Incline Village at Lake Tahoe, pasted on the back, was received at the Chronicle on March 22, 1971, and has been interpreted as the Zodiac claiming Lass's disappearance as a victim. No evidence has been uncovered to connect Lass's disappearance with the Zodiac definitively. There was also a suspected third escapee from the Zodiac. Kathleen Johns, who is 22, was allegedly abducted on March 22, 1970 on Highway 132 near I-580 in an area west of Modesto. Johns escaped from the car of a man who drove her and her infant daughter around the area between Stockton and Patterson for approximately one and a half hours. The timeline of the Zodiac killings began with the Lake Herman Road attack. The first murders attributed to the Zodiac were the shootings of high school students Betty Lou Jensen and David Faraday on December 20, 1968 on Lake Herman Road, just inside Benicia city limits. 
The couple were on their first date and planned to attend a Christmas concert at Hogan High School about three blocks from Jensen's home. The couple instead visited a friend before stopping at a local restaurant and then driving out to Lake Herman Road. About 10.15 p.m., Faraday parked his mother's rambler in a gravel turnout, which was a well-known lover's lane. Shortly after 11 p.m., their bodies were found by Stella Borges, who lived nearby. The Solano County Sheriff's Department investigated the crime, but no leads developed. Utilizing available forensic data, Robert Graysmith postulated that another car pulled into the turnout just prior to 11 and parked beside the couple. The killer apparently exited the second car and walked toward the Rambler, possibly ordering the couple out of the car. Jensen appeared to have exited the car first, yet when Faraday was halfway out, the killer apparently shot him in the head. Fleeing from the killer, Jensen was gunned down 28 feet from the car with five shots through her back. The killer then drove off. Next, the Blue Rock Springs attack. Just before midnight on July 4, 1969, Darlene Farron and Michael McGough drove into the Blue Rock Springs Park in Vallejo, four miles from the Lake Herman Road murder site, and parked. While the couple sat in Farron's car, a second car drove into the lot and parked alongside them, but almost immediately drove away. Returning about ten minutes later, this second car parked behind them. The driver of the second car exited the vehicle, approached the passenger side of the car, carrying a flashlight and a 9mm Luger pistol. The killer directed the flashlight into Magoe's and Farron's eyes before shooting at them, firing five times. Both victims were hit and several bullets had passed through Magoe and the end of Farron. The killer walked away from the car, but upon hearing Magoe's moaning, returned and shot each victim twice more before driving off. On July 5, 1969, at 12.40 a.m., a man phoned the Vallejo Police Department to report and claim responsibility for the attack. The caller also took credit for the murders of Jensen and Faraday six and a half months earlier. The police traced the call to a phone booth at a gas station at Springs Road and to alumni about three-tenths of a mile from Farron's home and only a few blocks from the Vallejo Police Department. Farron was pronounced dead at the hospital. Magot survived the attack despite being shot in the face, neck, and chest. Magot described his attacker as a 26-30 year old, 195 or 200 pound man, 5'8", white male with short, light brown curly hair. On August 1, 1969, three letters prepared by the killer were received by the Vallejo Times-Herald, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the San Francisco Examiner. The nearly identical letters, subsequently described by a psychiatrist to have been written by someone you would expect to be brooding and isolated, took credit for the shootings at Lake Herman Road in Blue Rock Springs. Each letter also included one-third of a 408-symbol cryptogram, which the killer claimed contained his identity. The killer demanded they be printed on each paper's front page 
or he would cruise around all weekend killing lone people in the night, then move on to kill again until I end up with a dozen people over the weekend. A solution to the 408 symbol cipher was completed by two amateurs. They were puzzle players, puzzle solvers, and they solved pretty much the entire cryptogram. And it said, I like killing people because it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all. To kill something gives me the most thrilling experience. It is even better than getting your rocks off with a girl. The best part of it is that when I die, I will be reborn in paradise and those I have killed will become my slaves. I will not give you my name because you will try to slow down or stop my collecting of slaves for my afterlife. Then there is a, a brief group of letters that don't make any sense. The Chronicle published its third of the cryptogram on page four of the next day's edition. An article printed alongside the code quoted Vallejo Police Chief Jack Stilts as saying, We're not satisfied that the letter was written by the murderer. And he requested the writer send a second letter with more facts to prove his identity. The threatened murders did not happen, and all three parts were eventually published. On August 7, 1969, another letter was received at the San Francisco Examiner with the salutation, Dear Editor, this is the Zodiac speaking. This was the first time the killer had used this name for identification. The letter was a response to Chief Stiltz's request for more details that would prove he had killed Faraday, Jensen, and Farron. In it, the Zodiac included details about the murders, which had not yet been released to the public, as well as a message to the police that, when they cracked his code, quote, they will have me, unquote. On August 8, 1969, that couple that solved puzzles all the time, Donald and Betty Harden of Salinas, California, cracked the 408-symbol cryptogram. It contained a misspelled message in which the killer said he was collecting slaves for the afterlife. No name appears in the decoded text, and the killer says that he would not give away his identity because it would slow down or stop his slave collection. The attack at Lake Berryessa occurred on September 27, 1969, where Pacific Union College students Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard were picnicking on a small island connected by a sand spit to Twin Oak Ridge. A white man about 5'11", weighing more than 170 pounds, with combed greasy brown hair approached them, wearing a black executioner's type hood with clip-on sunglasses over the eye holes, and a bib-like device on his chest that had a white 3x3 cross-circle symbol on it. He approached them with a gun, which Hartnell believed to be a 45. The hooded man claimed to be an escaped convict from a jail with the two-word name, either in Colorado or Montana. A police officer later inferred that he had been referring to a jail in Deer Lodge, Montana, where he had killed a guard and subsequently stolen a car, explaining that he now needed their car and money to go to Mexico as the vehicle he'd been driving was too hot. 
He had brought pre-cut lengths of plastic clothesline and told Shepard to tie up Hartnell before he tied her up. The killer checked and tightened Hartnell's bonds after discovering Shepard had bound Hartnell's hands loosely. Hartnell initially believed this event to be a weird robbery, but the man drew a knife and stabbed them both repeatedly, Hartnell suffering six and Shepard ten wounds in the process. The killer then hiked 500 yards back up to Knoxville Road, drew the cross-circle symbol on Hartnell's car door with a black felt-tip pen, and wrote beneath it, Vallejo, 12 20, 68. 6 4, 69. September 27, 69. 6.30, by knife. At 7.40 p.m., the killer called the Napa County Sheriff's Office from a payphone. He did this to report the latest crime. The caller first stated to the operator that he wished to report a murder, no, a double murder, before stating that he had been the perpetrator of the crime. The phone was found still off the hook minutes later at the Napa car wash on Main Street in Napa by KVON radio reporter Pat Stanley, only a few blocks from the sheriff's office, yet 27 miles from the crime scene. In Puerto Rico, we call ourselves Boricua. We are proud, passionate, and full of life. On our island, adventure finds you. Strangers aren't strangers for long. The size of the audience doesn't change the beauty of the music. And we celebrate every last ray of sun. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Detectives were able to lift a still wet palm print from the phone, but were never able to match it to any suspect. After hearing their screams for help, a man and his son who were fishing in a nearby cove discovered the two stabbing victims and summoned help by contacting park rangers. Napa County Sheriff deputies Dave Collins and Ray Land were the first law enforcement officers to arrive at the crime scene. Cecilia Shepard was conscious when Collins arrived, providing him with a detailed description of the attacker. Hartnell and Shepard were taken to Queen of the Valley Hospital in Napa by ambulance. Shepard lapsed into a coma during transport to the hospital and never regained consciousness. She died two days later, but Hartnell survived to recount his tale to the press. Napa County Sheriff's Detective Ken Narlow who was assigned to the case from the outset, worked on solving the crime until his retirement from the department in 1987. The Presidio Heights attack occurred two weeks later on October 11, 1969, when a passenger entered the cab driven by Paul Stein at the intersection of Mason and Geary Streets, which is one block west from Union Square in San Francisco, requesting to be taken to Washington and Maple Streets in Presidio Heights. 
For reasons unknown, Stein drove one block past Maple to Cherry Street. The passenger then shot Stein once in the head with a 9mm, took Stein's wallet and car keys, and tore away a section of Stein's blood-stained shirt tail. This passenger was observed by three teenagers across the street at 9.55 p.m. who called the police while the crime was in progress. They observed a man wiping the cab down before walking away towards the Presidio, one block to the north. Two blocks from the crime scene, Officer Dan Falk responded to the call and observed a white man walking along the sidewalk and stepping onto a stairway leading up to the front yard of one of the homes on the north side of the street. The encounter lasted only 5 to 10 seconds. Falk estimated the man to be between 35 and 45 years old, while the teenagers who observed the killer in Stein's cab mentioned he was 25 to 30. And he was a white male, and he was between 5'8 and 5'9. The radio dispatcher had alerted to be on the lookout for a black suspect, so they drove past him without stopping. The mix-up in descriptions remains unexplained. A search ensued, but no suspects were found. The three teenagers worked with the police artist to prepare a composite sketch of Stein's killer. A few days later, this police artist returned, working with the witnesses to prepare a second composite of the killer. Detectives Bill Armstrong and Dave Toshi were assigned to the case. The San Francisco Police Department investigated an estimated 2,500 suspects over a period of years. On October 14, 1969, the Chronicle received another letter from Zodiac, this time containing a swatch of Paul Stein's shirt tail as proof he was the killer. It also included a threat about killing school children on a school bus. To do this, Zodiac wrote, quoting, just shoot out the front tire and then pick off the kitties as they come bouncing out, unquote. At 2 p.m. on October 20th, 1969, someone claiming to be Zodiac called the Oakland police, demanding that one of two prominent lawyers, either F. Lee Bailey or Melvin Belli, appear on the local television show AM San Francisco, hosted by Jim Dunbar. Bailey was not available, but Belli did appear on the show. Dunbar appealed to the viewers to keep the lines open, and eventually, someone claiming to be the Zodiac called several times and said his name was Sam. Now, I find that particularly interesting because Five to six years later, we have the son of Sam killing people in New York. And I looked it up, and while this doesn't seem to match, I mean, connect the two, except by name only, it's still an interesting situation that this guy would refer to himself as Sam. Belli agreed to meet with him in Daly City, but the suspect never showed up. On November 8, 1969, the Zodiac mailed a card with another cryptogram consisting of 340 characters. The 340-character cipher has never been decoded. Numerous possible solutions have been suggested, but none can be claimed as definitive. On November 9, 1969, Zodiac mailed a seven-page letter stating that two policemen stopped and actually spoke with him three minutes after he shot Stein. 
Excerpts from the letter were published in the Chronicle on November 12th, including the Zodiac's claim that same day. Officer Don Falk wrote a memo explaining what had happened on the night of Stein's murder. On December 20th, 1969, exactly one year after the murders of David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen, Zodiac mailed a letter to Belli that included another swatch of Stein's shirt. The Zodiac said he wanted Belli to help him. Well, that's what I have time for tonight. We will continue this story on the next episode of Terry's Mysterious Moments next week. I have a lot more information to cover with you. I know this has been fast and furious. But this is this is a story that needs to be told. So many of the listeners are young, may not may not know about the Zodiac, may not know anything about him, and those who are older should remember who Zodiac was. Well, that's what I have for this week, and I want to thank you for being here to listen. Thank you for coming along for the ride. Remember that on Mondays, you can listen to Aaron Hunter with Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast. On Tuesdays, you can listen to Aaron Frail with Aaron's Horror Show. On Wednesdays, you can listen to me, Terry's Mysterious Moments. And on the first Saturday of the month, we have a new group with us, and they are called Buried Secrets Paranormal. And they do investigations and provide video on the first Saturday of the month of their investigation. So it may be several videos covering one investigation. But they they may have some other short episodes to go along the rest of the month. Well, anyway, that's what I have for tonight. I want to thank you again for listening. And remember to be here next week. And as usual, have a great week, folks. Good night.